Paper was like gold in medieval times. I want tobacco. Sugar. That everything we thought we knew about the world might turn out to be completely wrong. Information and communication technologies have transformed our societies. Today, this deluge of digital data washes over us from all sides, all the time. We carry devices everywhere we go, which connect us with our loved ones, our co-workers, and ultimately the whole planet. Smartphones, computers, and tablets are constantly seeking our attention. The permanent zapping between these technologies has an impact on our lives and our brains. These digital tools act as electronic leashes and are responsible for cognitive overload and stress, especially in the workplace. Research into measuring the effects of this digital flood is only just beginning. In the meantime, what solutions do we have to deal with this ever-growing flow? We're stressed because there's too much information to process. This information arrives too fast and in volumes that is not humanly possible to handle. So all the conditions are combined for severe stress. Thierry Venin, author of a book on how to survive in the digital society, believes that information technologies are responsible for the increase in stress in the workplace. Nowadays, humanity produces as much information in two days as it did in our entire history before the advent of the digital age. The quantities are so vast that they become abstract. To have an idea of the scale, you need a comparison. For example, take France's National Library, one of the biggest in the world with some 14 million books. Every second, the equivalent of double this library is distributed on the web, or 63 million French national libraries a year. I see that we're living in an age of the wild west of technology where we've got all these different applications and devices and people are switching back and forth between all these different devices and applications. It's really like the Wild West because it's chaotic. We're faced with a paradoxical situation in which the tools that should facilitate our lives seem to complicate them. How did we get to this point? How has digital technology revolutionized the workplace? That's what Cindy Fellio, researcher in information and communication sciences, wants to find out by interviewing managers on their rapport with the digital world. My objective was to see how this was really impacting the workplace, how it affects employees who use digital technology on a daily basis. At the same time, I wanted to find out if digital devices are creating new psychosocial risks in the workplace. For her research, Cindy Fellio interviewed around 100 managers, since they are the first to fall prey to digital stress. All these tasks of information management or processing encroach on the core of the job. Some of them spoke to me about a feeling of disqualification, of being distanced from their real work. 
In the end, based on the analysis that I carried out, it becomes clear that these technologies mean work becomes more dense. It is intensified through this race for urgency, this time pressure, the instantaneousness that these tools allow. Bernard Mananes is one of the managers interviewed by Cindy Felio. In his previous post, he had trouble dealing with the pressure due to digital devices. He chose to change jobs to reduce the stress. Let's say you start work on a subject at 8.30 in the morning. At 8.36, you receive an email marked urgent. Since almost 60% of emails these days are marked urgent, because people think otherwise you won't answer. Meanwhile, you receive a text, then a phone call, then you return to the dossier you started on 8.30, and it'll be 10.15, 10.30 or 11 o'clock. By now, you lost the thread of what you wanted to do, which means... Excuse me. I'm in a meeting. Can I call you back? It's true that when you're constantly assailed by ringing, beeps and alerts, you lose your concentration. You lose your concentration. We can clearly see that when he's interrupted, he struggles to pick up the thread of his thoughts. And that's characteristic of these environments that I describe as electronic bombardment or water torture. Take, for example, the working groups that I run. We have an interruption every six minutes. And in the end, this new digital working ecosystem is totally structured so that you can't work. That's exactly what happened right there. These incessant demands force us to provide responses, a cycle that can eat up a lot of time. Experts estimate that just dealing with emails accounts for 30% of an employee's day. Matthew Pedelaor works for a company that manages data networks. He doesn't have a choice. He has to be permanently connected. Yes, Francis. No, go ahead, I'm listening. We'll make it quick. I have to be reachable 24 hours a day, weekends, the night, whenever. And I'm sometimes called in the middle of the night when there are major problems. Okay, I'll call you back later to talk about it. I'd be the first to say we'd all like to be able to breathe a bit and switch off from time to time. I just saw the email, and I'm not happy about it. In any case, we've got a meeting coming up. Even when I'm relaxing, even at the weekend, at any moment, if you receive an email, you have to read it to see if it's something important. Which in this case, it is. So my walk is going to be cut short, or else I'll pause for a few minutes, either to take a call or to take the time to answer this email. Nowadays, one in two managers do not allow themselves to disconnect from work in the evening. In the modern working world, it has become almost impossible to do otherwise. There's a sort of injunction. 
an implicit rule to be permanently connected, to reply to emails as soon as you get them, because you're equipped with this phone, and that's exactly what this device is for. Being able to plug into your work at any time of day, anywhere, poses some questions in the private sphere. There might be cases of divorce or arguments with partners due to the excessive intrusion of the work smartphone in the family home. And when work becomes invasive, digital stress can lead to burnout. Stephanie Lussain experienced this in her previous job. She now works on a wine estate. I often used to get up in the night because I worked with China and India, so I'd get up to deal with some emails so things moved faster. I thought it was being efficient. It was good for the company. I was not compelled to do so, but it seemed to me that the company's existence depended on it, but I totally overlooked my own life. In fact, I felt an obligation to be online all the time because it was a total addiction. I wasn't alive if I wasn't online. I had to keep checking in, knowing what was going on, even at the weekend, on vacation. I was looking at my email all the time, even on my honeymoon vacation. Then, there was a moment when I woke up. I realized I had to stop. The thing that triggered this was when my daughter, Lilu, said to me one day, Mom, all you do is shout. You're really mean. You need an operation. Then I decided to take steps and stop checking in all the time. Of course, in her new job, Stephanie still has to go online. But now she keeps it within strict hours, approved by her employers. Stephanie narrowly avoided burnout, but not everyone is so lucky. I suffered from burnout myself a few years ago. Now I know how to handle it and manage things differently, but I honestly think it's the information overload from these new digital devices which caused it. The overload will inevitably lead to a state of fatigue, mental fatigue, and in some cases, full-blown burnout. That's the fashionable term for it. But why is it fashionable? Because it also appeared with these new technologies. Since these technologies are now part of our lives, we're going to have to learn to manage them better. According to Thierry Venin, in France and Germany, some 12% of the working population is at high risk of burnout. This situation is closely linked to information and communication technologies. I go berserk when I feel that I haven't got the means to deliver what is expected of me. In other words, I can't see this through. As soon as you adopt this definition, you understand why these technologies have a powerful impact. Because wrapped up with the fact that I can't deliver, there's also the fact that I'm working all the time. Whether I'm at home, on the subway, wherever, I'm working. 
Without these technologies, I couldn't do that. I always have to go faster. So all the time we come back to the effects of information and communication technologies in this stressful ecosystem. In France, the cost of stress in the workplace is estimated at 2,500 to 3,500 deaths. So we're talking about some extremely brutal cases of burnout, several hundreds of thousands of sick days. So the social cost of the work-related stress pandemic is extremely high. We're only just becoming aware of the effects of digital stress. But can we analyze the nature of this stress? Are we exhibiting new behaviors, new ways of working linked to these devices which threaten our equilibrium? That's what Professor Gloria Mark wants to understand. Researcher in psychology at the informatics department of an American university, Gloria Mark focuses on the interactions between humans and computers. For the past 20 years, she has been carrying out field studies into how the growing role of digital technologies is changing us. I would interview people and I would ask them about their experiences and everybody felt distracted from email. So I looked for a field site that was willing to have its employees cut off email. Uh, it took me six years to find an organization. A unit of the U.S. Army near Boston agreed to take part in one of her experiments. The aim was to evaluate the effect of emails on staff members. To carry out her research, Gloria Mark observes employees and takes physiological measurements. Sarah? Yes. Hi, I'm Gloria Mark, and we're doing a study. Thank you very much for volunteering. So I have some devices that I'd like you to wear. The professor equips the staff with a device that measures their heartbeat. This gives an indication of the level of stress. She adds a captor which measures the number of interactions between coworkers. And so your other colleagues, when they come in close proximity to you, the signals from these badges pick up okay. each other. And it can tell when you're close with another person and interacting with them. Okay. Okay? Now we're going to cut off your email for a period of five days. Wow. By analyzing the results before and after blocking email traffic, Gloria Mark observes an increase in direct interactions between staff members. Her study shows that email is the leading source of stress in the office. What we found was that uh, the more time people spend on email, the higher their stress is. We also found that the longer time on email, the lower people assessed their productivity at the end of the day. This was a very robust result because we controlled for people's job characteristics. So that means no matter what kind of job you have, whether you're a manager, whether you're an administrator, whether you're a researcher, whether you're an engineer, irrespective of job role, it's the same result. For the past 10 years, Gloria Mark has been taking careful measurements of our concentration span in front of screens. She has observed a dramatic change. In 2004, we found that the average 
length of time that people focused on any activity was three minutes. In 2012, we found that on any computer screen, people's attention was about one minute and 15 seconds on average. So their attention shifting is happening more frequently. I've also done a very large study with college undergraduate students. These are the millennial generation. These are young people that have grown up with the internet, with digital devices, with smartphones, and their attention duration on any computer screen is even shorter. It's about 45 seconds. Kelly Mitchell. I think people have multitasked, you know, for a long time. I mean, we've had telephone, we've had radio, but I think what's different now in the workplace is that people have access through digital media to more information faster than they've ever had in history. People report burnout because each time you um, orient to a new task, it's a strain. So we know that multitasking uh, and the consequent interruptions create stress and create a cognitive overload. In our increasingly digital societies, constant pressure and multitasking have become the norm. But just how far can our brains deal with such overload? That is what Stéphane Buffa, military doctor and specialist in aeronautics, is interested in. He has been studying cognitive load among pilots. In other words, the effort their brains have to make to accomplish the tasks necessary during a flight. The concept of cognitive load began to be formulated in the 1930s with changes in the factory. From there, the concept has been exported into other domains. Aeronautics has driven developments since the stakes are very high in terms of safety. So there is a strong demand to improve practices, or in any case to understand what's going on inside cockpits. The first planes had no instruments, and the pilots back then worked entirely using their senses. Then gradually, the quantity of information grew, reaching a maximum number of dials in the Concorde. There were so many dials they had to add crew members to manage the flight. Then there was a step change with the arrival of multifunction screens, which brought a change in the way the information is presented. This was a reorganization. There's not less information, but it is structured differently. To study the cognitive load among pilots, Stefan Buffa measures electrical activity in the brain and heart rate, and observes pilots' behavior during flight. Using all these parameters, we're going to evaluate some of your internal activity, which we can correlate with the cognitive load during the flight. What's interesting about these measurements is that they give you a dynamic reading of his state during the flight and the actions, and we can then analyze these readings.
With this type of simulator, we can simulate a flight and the occurrence of certain technical problems. These have to be managed by the pilot who will have to deal with this increasing demand. If we give him several competing tasks at the same time, the pilot needs to mobilize all his resources in terms of both memory and attention. He has to manage his priorities to execute his actions. Okay, engine failure. Decision height. Okay, we're down. Everything's fine. When the helicopter pilot has to deal with a mechanical failure in a power line, he has to decide which is the most immediate danger. He will probably treat the power line as an imminent emergency, but switching tasks has a cost in terms of information treatment time and in terms of errors. You can observe this in a simulator mission. With this simulated engine failure, the pilot has to deal with a sudden flood of information. It is therefore crucial that he does not make any mistakes while he has several tasks to accomplish. Activation of the malfunction. Okay, Dennis, malfunction has occurred. Can you manage a conversation at the same time? Yes, we'll see. Can I ask you what is three times four? Uh, I can answer 12 at the moment. And can you recite the alphabet backwards? Just a moment. Let's see. Z. Why? Each time you switch tasks, you will slow your response time, and you'll also become more tired. The impression of dealing with multiple tasks is deceptive, because in fact, each of these tasks is dealt with superficially. The subject manages to give the impression of performance faced with these multiple tasks. But when you look a little closer, you can see that as he changes priorities, he might modify his performance criteria downwards. He thinks he has done a good job, whereas in fact he has lowered his performance criteria. So there's a real impact in this multitask mode. Deactivation of all malfunctions. After analyzing the data recorded on the memory card, the experiment shows that the multitask mode reduces performance even for an experienced pilot. Thanks to digital devices, many claim to be able to multitask. But most of the time, the impression of efficiency this gives us is little more than an illusion. What is going on in our brains when we handle several tasks at the same time? And what impact does multitasking have on our attention span? That is what Aurélie Bidet-Collet, neuroscience researcher in Lyon, is studying. The scientist is trying to understand how our different kinds of attention interact depending upon our environment. 
I don't think there is only one type of attention, but that there are several types of attention, and that these types of attention are based on different cerebral mechanisms, different types of activity in the brain. And that's what I'm trying to unravel. Among the different types of attention, Aurélie Bidet-Collet is studying sustained attention, which allows us to remain attentive for several minutes or hours, and our selective attention, which cuts out unwanted background noise in our environment. The researcher wants to understand which mechanisms are working together when we perform dual tasks. There's an experiment in which we try to measure brain activity in a dual-task situation to see if it's possible to carry out two activities at once. You'll hear your name, and the aim is to count how many times you hear it, so the number of times you hear Judith. At the same time, numbers will appear on the screen, and you have to click using the mouse when you see the number two. All right? All right, let's start. Judith. From the electrodes at the back of the head, we're starting to see slow oscillations appear, which show that her vigilance is dropping, and so she is less attentive towards the task in hand. The analysis of Judith's brain waves shows that trying to accomplish two tasks is leading to a conflict in her brain because she is using the same network of neurons. When you try to answer the phone and write an email at the same time, the brain tends to alternate between the two activities. And what happens is, when you go to write a bit of the email, you will miss what the person tells you on the phone. If we do two activities that depend on the same brain networks, such as writing an email and speaking on the phone, we're using the language network for both, and so the network becomes saturated. Inevitably, at least one of the two activities will suffer. In the workplace, we often operate in a noisy environment, with phones ringing and co-workers talking, what scientists call non-pertinent information. Like the beeps in this experiment, these sounds interfere with our attention, even though most of the time we are able to ignore them. The brain has inhibitor mechanisms which reduce our responses to non-pertinent sounds. It's as if the brain makes them silent, cancelling them out, and therefore stops reacting to that input. These inhibitor mechanisms are essential. Since our brains are continually bombarded with sound and visual information from our immediate environment. But the dual task situation upsets these filters, as Aurélie Bidet-Collet's experiment shows. When we find ourselves in a situation facing dual tasks, the inhibitor mechanisms are greatly impaired and we are far less able to filter non-pertinent stimuli from the environment, like the sound of a nearby coffee machine or someone passing in the corridor. The experiment shows that in a dual-task situation, we are much less capable of cutting out noise and our attention suffers. 
The notion that some people are multitaskers is thus refuted by scientific studies. The fantasy that consists of encouraging youngsters to think they might be more capable of multitasking than their elders is not supported by any serious cognitive study and fosters a compulsive zapping that will do them a lot of harm. What is quite remarkable is that we might expect the younger generations to automatically have a lower level of stress since they were born into a digital world and so they are supposedly at ease with digital devices. Surprisingly, studies show that the opposite is true. Notably, a major European survey among 30,000 employees, which found that stress rates among the young compared to their elders when it came to information and communication technologies, were significantly higher. This survey, carried out by the GFK Institute in 29 countries, showed that 39% of under-30s suffer from work taking up too great a place in their lives. Because digital devices are continually calling for our attention, it is becoming necessary to learn how to resist these multiple distractions and starting from a young age. For the first time in France, workshops to develop attention span have been designed based on research studies. These workshops are the result of a collaboration of the neuroscientist Jean-Philippe Lachaud and the education administration in the Lyon region. Lachaud is convinced that we can learn to resist the siren call of digital devices from a very young age. I never thought I'd find myself back at school one day. I thought I was done with all that. Then I started to take on the challenge of going into classes to design a training or education program about attention aimed at children. Oh, look who's here. Scientists are here. How's it going, kids? The program starts as early as nursery school. Despite having attended one of France's most elite universities, Jean-Philippe Lachaud is ready to come down to the kids' level to explain the workings of the brain to them. All through the year, we're going to learn a little bit about the brain, how it works, and how to use it best to control our attention. This is called the ATOL program. AT for attention and OL for school. The scientist can either stay in his ivory tower or he can get interested in society and try to propose some solutions. A thousand pupils take part in this program, which helps children prepare to resist the massive onslaught of digital content. The aim is to show all children that they can master their attention span, with benefits that will last into adulthood and working life. If the experiment proves a success, it will be extended to all schools in France. What is the brain for? Put your hand up. For thinking. For being attentive. It's not just for serious stuff. It's also for everything that's fun. What will be important and will create a difference between individuals is the value we give to attention. If for one person or their family it's very important to be attentive, if attention is valued, we'll have more attentive children. If you're with an infant aged maybe one or two and you start to read the child's stories and whenever his or her gaze wanders, you stop, the child will sense that you're expecting a certain level of attention. 
From that point on, there are lots of little things one can do on a daily basis to nurture attention in a child, which can then be developed. So we have to pay attention to our attention span. It plays a central role in our lives and is increasingly under threat by digital communication. In an attentive brain, you have the involvement of the regions of the brain which are responsible for the high-level cognitive functions, for example, memorizing, planning, and understanding. Those regions will suddenly start being active, they will react. Whereas when the brain isn't attentive, on the contrary, they will remain silent or simply occupied with something else. The attention training exercises continue. On the beam, the children must continually refocus their attention to stop themselves from falling. The mental picture of the beam will accompany them throughout their apprenticeship. Staying balanced on the beam means managing to remain stable despite the forces which are tending to pull me to one side or another. It's the same idea for attention. I try to remain concentrated. I have an exercise to perform. There's point A, point B, the start and the end of the exercise. And I'm going to try and remain concentrated, even if there are forces that are distracting my attention. I might want to talk to my friends or have an idea. I might lose focus on my exercise. It's about learning to resist these forces by remembering there's this line in the body that I set off. I'm going to relax and try to hold it all together. Stabilization of the body, of the mind, and of the attention. Jean-Philippe Lachaud has come up with other techniques to help stabilize our attention. To better manage their capacity for attention, the children are learning to divide up their activities. I have to tidy my room. Tidy my room. Tidying a bedroom is a complex task for a child. But if it is broken down into small missions, like putting the dolls in one box, the cars in another, then making the bed, attention does not wander. All too often, children try to do everything at once. That's one of the reasons they lose concentration. What we're teaching them here is to separate things out into a series of smaller objectives. That way, the room is quickly tidied. What about us? Can we divide our working day up into mini missions? The key to maintaining good attention is establishing a sequence of tasks, setting one objective after another. On the face of it, that's not so hard. But few of us manage to stick to this, because we think we'll go faster by tackling multiple objectives. One of the problems for children and even adults is that often we let ourselves get distracted because we haven't got a very clear intention of what we're trying to achieve. We have several objectives at the same time. You have to think that in such moments, the brain must make decisions several times per second about what's important and what isn't. And that decision-making can become awfully complicated if we're trying to do several things at once, if you're not very clear about your intention. On top of that, we've seen that the digital environment makes great claims on our attention. Instead of having two or three potentially interesting things, I have 15,000. I'm on the internet and I'm looking for an answer to a particular question I have in mind. Then suddenly I see an advert or a link which says, click here. So I click and that's it, I'm off. I've forgotten what I was looking for and I've forgotten my initial intention. When you try to do lots of things at once, even if you like this multitasking mode, 
you have to keep a very large quantity of things in your memory. You have to remember everything involving task 1, task 2, 3 and 4. And it ends up getting too crowded and becomes very difficult on a cognitive level. It's better to set mini-missions, each of which can be concluded, leaving you entirely available for the next mission. Jean-Philippe Lachaud has no doubt that attention can be learned and that it needs to be developed like a muscle. Although digital devices have invaded our daily lives and are continually seeking our attention, some people handle this better than others. Jubin Raimi runs a digital marketing company in Cologne. For him, hyperconnectivity is not a problem. His solution is to compartmentalize his activities. When I travel, I make every minute profitable. Here I can write emails, I can make phone calls, or simply find out some new information. It doesn't matter whether there's a lot of noise around me or not. It doesn't disturb me at all. You can forget the outside world when you're concentrated on something. At the head of a digital marketing company, Jubin Raimi considers information as the essential raw material for his area of activity. And he has his own method for managing it. You mustn't continually react to all the information. You have to set a clear amount of time to deal with it. For example, you have to say, I've got one hour to handle the information on this or that topic. That way you put yourself in a position to act and you are not overwhelmed. If Jubin Raimi knows how to conserve his attention amidst the noise and multiple distractions, it's all thanks to chess. From a young age, he received high-level training in some surprising methods. We pushed the training so far that we started to do some insane things, like playing chess in the middle of a football stadium when two teams were playing each other. And the joke was that people playing football had to play as close as possible to the chessboard to upset the chess players. But obviously they couldn't kick the ball into them, otherwise that counted as a goal for the opposition. So you had to try and stay concentrated on the chess game when there was a lot of noise around you, when you might get hit by a ball. That type of training taught us to concentrate even in a noisy environment. And the result is that I'm capable of concentrating in the middle of an airport while completely blocking out the rest. The example of Jubin Raimi shows that attention training can help people deal with the pressures of digital demands. But even if we know how to filter out noise and concentrate, can we continually stimulate our brains without them suffering in the long term? That is the question that Francis Eustache, a neuropsychology researcher in Caen, is trying to answer. 
He thinks it is essential to give our brains the possibility to disconnect. The new information technologies are a fabulous means of access to knowledge. But, at the same time, I think we have to think about their impact on our day-to-day -day lives and also on the workings of our brain. The incessant siren call of digital devices stops the brain from having the breaks it needs. Our brains have a network of neurons for which a period of downtime is indispensable, the default mode network. It's a network which activates when the brain is at wakeful rest, when we're not doing very much, but when we're not in a sleep mode. When our thoughts wander and we don't seem to be very active, the brain carries on working, just in a different way. A special network of neurons becomes active, the default network. This is what does the work when we are not concentrating on a specific task, like calculation or writing an email. This network involves several areas of the brain. We can see these red zones, and that's the default network with the anterior part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and the posterior part here, called the posterior cingulate cortex. Schematically, this corresponds to, for the front part, the areas here over the forehead, and then the areas at the back, which are in the folds of the cerebral hemispheres. This network becomes active when, for example, we're driving on a familiar road in good weather conditions and the traffic is fluid. It's not that we're lacking in vigilance. We are attentive, but in a diffuse way, and if there's any danger, we react right away. That's one of the wonders of our cerebral machinery. While staying alert, we're able to do something else. This might seem quite simple, but it's very elaborate and very important for our mental equilibrium. Francis Eustache's research shows that the default network plays a fundamental role for our memory. It is, however, fragile, a fact that can be observed in certain neurological illnesses, which means the default network doesn't function correctly. It's a network that's involved in memory and which enables us to process memory, including the connection between what is old and what is new, and projecting into the future. It also plays a part in our connection with other people. So it's an extremely important network, both for our well-being and for integration in the world around us. So to look after our memory, it seems essential to take care of our default network. And to do that, we have to be capable of taking breaks, far from digital stimuli. I think the work of the brain, the work of processing memory, is also about allowing moments to ourselves which allow our brains to process and to reflect, to not be simply responding or simply at the mercy of external stimulation. Memory is not just a matter of having lots of memories. It's above all a construction, a synthesis. Hence the importance of looking after it.
But the attraction of digital information is such that the desire to be connected often takes precedence. People can't control their urge to to check email, to check Facebook, to uh, switch to the Internet. So people report uh, when we interview them that they just feel compelled to check. I've been in areas with no network coverage for my cell phone, and I felt the stress starting to build up, to the point where it felt like civilization had forgotten me. I was out of touch, and I couldn't reach anyone else if I needed to. Spending half an hour or an hour in an area without any network whatsoever made me feel stressed, genuinely really stressed. Where does that urge to be in touch and always have access to information come from? Are the mechanisms the same as an addiction to alcohol or drugs? In your brain, you have a circuit called the reward system, which is made up of neurons whose main function is to memorize the things we like. In other words, each time we derive pleasure from doing something, eating something, seeing something, they will record a memory of that. And that's good because it allows us to drink when we're thirsty and eat when we're hungry. The problem with the reward system is that it reacts to lots of other things, not to mention addictions. For example, it reacts to fresh stimulus. It's also been shown that it reacts to information. So if you have one of these little devices called a smartphone, which is continually bombarding you with information and new content, those little devices are acting as a very powerful stimulus on the reward system. In the same way as drugs, the digital environment activates the reward system. But in the absence of serious mental or physical harm, we cannot talk of addiction in the medical meaning of the term. It's more of a question of excessive behaviors in relation to these technologies. What we want to find out is what this intensive use actually means. Is it a social problem or is it a family problem? What I would recommend in any case is opening up a space for discussion on these issues, since this now forms an integral part of employees' work. If we want to survive the stress of digital life, we have to question our use of computers and smartphones. But in the interaction between humans and machines, perhaps we might look to the machines for progress. Improving IT technologies to lighten our cognitive load is the focus of computer science researcher Professor Robert Jacob and his team. Their objective is ambitious, to make the computer adjust in real time to our cognitive load when we are carrying out a task. The idea is that the computer will send us lots of information when our brain is available and less when it is tired. We think of the person and the computer as two powerful information processors connected to each other by a narrow bandwidth, very limited connection, which is the user interface, the screen, the keyboard, the mouse, whatever. So we're trying to improve the amount of information that can be passed across that. In our particular work, we're trying to improve the information from the user to the computer, because that seems like the one with the, the lowest bandwidth with current technology. 
It is not yet a question of the computer reading our thoughts, but of knowing our workload at any given time. Thanks to an imagery technique, software analyzes the oxygen in the blood flow in the prefrontal cortex. The more oxygen the brain consumes, the harder it is working. The computer is then able to vary the quantity of information it sends us according to our mental workload. Here, tests are being carried out on air traffic control tasks. The user is controlling several airplanes at once. They have to timeshare between the different airplanes. First, they have to adjust this airplane, then that airplane, then go back to the first airplane. What we did in this system was we tried to adjust the number of airplanes that you're assigned to control based on your workload. We don't want to give you too few airplanes or you'll get bored. We don't want to give you too many or you can't handle them. We'd like to adjust the airplanes to your mental state. We can also use this kind of measurement to decide when and whether to interrupt the user. If the user is in the middle of doing something difficult and intense, that's not a good time to interrupt. If they're at the end of a task and a little bit of a lull with less short-term memory, that's a good time to interrupt. So our goal is to make what we call implicit user interfaces that pull information out of the user without taking any of their attention in order to do it. Professor Jacobs' research could initially be applied to air traffic controllers who are subjected to a vast influx of information resulting in permanent stress. In the long term, he plans to extend his work to other fields of activity. And if you're not driving airplanes but doing office work, this also applies. Your workload may go up or down and we can adjust, um, adjust what you have to do based on it. Robert Jacob has also come up with a system that filters the information we receive on our digital devices, for example, emails, depending on our cognitive load. If we are very busy, we would receive edited versions. When we have more time, we would get the full information. If the kind of research Robert Jacob is undertaking proves successful, our information overload should be reduced. But is that good news? or just an additional intrusion of digital devices into the private workings of our minds? It is too early to answer that question. It is also hard to say just how far we can adapt our behavior to our insatiable technological inventiveness. These devices shape us which show they're not passive in terms of their relationship with people and that they do have an influence. If we simply say digital technology is like a hammer, I can smash in my neighbor's skull, but at the end of the day the hammer is not to blame, we are limiting our capacity to control its effects. We're living in this age where we keep inventing you know, wonderful technologies and keep throwing them at people, and people are at this point where they're not quite understanding how to use them. And so we have to think how we can design technology to adapt better to how humans think. We want to design technologies to promote productivity for people to be effective, but also it should not infringe on our well-being. The digital deluge which is flooding our world challenges our place in society. It is up to us to limit the harmful effects of information overload, to not allow our attention span to be undermined by the demands of technology, and to reclaim the right to be disconnected.